Thank you guys for tuning in today and welcome back to another episode of The Source. I'm your host Zan Raza and today I'll be talking to Dmitry Raskaris about the war in Ukraine with a focus on international developments. Dmitry Raskaris is a journalist and a board member of the Real News Network. He's also a lawyer specializing in class actions, international law and human rights. In 2020, he ran for the Green Party leadership in Canada, finishing second. Dmitry, welcome back to the show. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Zane. Thank you. I would like to start with the latest developments surrounding Ukraine. The debate, as you probably know, has now shifted from battle tanks to fighter jets. Training of Ukraine soldiers on how to operate these tanks is taking place on German soil as we speak, and it is expected that these tanks will go into operation in Ukraine sometime in March. The UK and Netherlands have voiced support for sending fighter jets, and in UK's case, they're already training Ukrainian pilots. During US President Biden's so-called surprise visit to Ukraine, the US pledged an extra 500 million aid to Ukraine, which will also entail military equipment such as javelins, howitzers, and artillery ammunition. Russia's anticipated offensive, many point out, has already begun and is focused on Bakhmut. How do you assess the developments and will fighter jets make the difference? Well, I, I think you, it's hard to answer that question without taking careful account into what's happening on the battlefield, and particularly Bakhmut, which you just mentioned. Um, the reports coming not just from the Russian Ministry of Defense and from the Wagner private military company, but even from Western mainstream uh, sources, including the Institute for the Study of War, which is one of the most widely cited uh, US think tanks on the, on the question of the status of the war, um, are, are all pointing to an encirclement of Bakhmut, uh, and if not an outright entrapment of thousands, it's unclear how many, but thousands of Ukrainian forces there. Bakhmut, although the, you know, the Western media have tried to diminish its importance, it is really the linchpin of the main defense line of the Ukrainian military, certainly in the Donbass, which is where the, the, the main fighting has taken place. And if it falls, and it seems very likely that it will, uh, it's entirely possible that that entire defense line will quickly collapse uh, and that Russia, Russian forces would then be able to advance largely unmolested to Kramatorsk and Slavyansk, the last two major communities that are not controlled by Russia uh, in the Donbass. Uh, and, you know, as all of this is unfolding, I, any sensible, you know, military official from the West or political leader would be asking, what is the point of sending additional weaponry, uh, including in particularly F-16s to Ukraine at this stage? Uh, are they going to be able to deploy to, to use them in a manner that will uh, change the tide of the war? Uh, you know, will it be too late by the time they get there and they have been trained? Uh, will would be sacrificing, you know, air, air assets, air combat assets that are very important to the defense of our own borders. Uh, so I think that uh, as the situation in the Donbass deteriorates for Ukraine, it may be that it's becoming less and less likely that it's not just a question of F-16s, but any more, you know, heavy weaponry and sophisticated weaponry will be provided in substantial numbers to the Ukrainian military. Now, even if they do provide it, uh, you know, the F-16s, you know, and they do begin to turn the tide, right, which I, would greatly surprise me uh, because the Russians have very, very sophisticated air defenses and a gigantic uh, contingent of combat aircraft, very sophisticated combat aircraft. And they've been fighting in this theater 
of war for months. So, you know, they've had an opportunity to hone their skills in terms of taking down enemy aircraft. I, I'm very, I would be very surprised that, that, that this would make a meaningful difference. But if it did, you know, we would be looking at a potentially very serious escalation of the war. So I don't think any way you slice it, Zane, this is a good idea. Uh, I think it's a disastrous idea. I said it a million times and I'll say it again until I'm blue in the face. Sensible, rational, humane people would be prioritizing negotiation right now, particularly given the events in Bakhmut. You mentioned uh, negotiation. On the anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, China proposed a 12-point peace plan to end the war. The German media were quick to denounce this plan by stating that it supports Russia's positions and interests and does not respect Ukraine's territorial integrity. Other criticisms centered around the fact that China's plan is seeking to divide the West and the Tagesschau, one of Germany's leading news outlets, even had an analyst on who claimed that this plan is seeking to undermine any international alliance that may develop in terms of Taiwan. How do you assess China's plan? Can they be trusted? Well, look, I looked at, we, we, we can never say with any certainty what is in the minds of a, a foreign leader, any leader. Uh, all you can do is listen to what they say and compare what they say to the actions that they actually take uh, as a government. Um, I read that plan. Uh, you know, I'm not a mind reader, but I read that plan and I didn't see anything in it which is inconsistent with international law. Absolutely nothing. I, I believe the very first clause of the Chinese uh, proposal is uh, respect for territorial integrity. Um, I think the part that the United States is reacting negatively to, I, I mean, let, let, let's step back. I don't think that there was any prospect of the United States reacting favorably to this plan because they don't want an end to the war. Uh, they see this as an opportunity to weaken Russia. Uh, and uh, secondarily, they don't want China to get any credit uh, on the international stage for having facilitated the resolution of the war. So I think it was inevitable they were going to reject it. Uh, but I think the part that they're particularly irked about is that the plan also calls for an end to unilateral sanctions. This is actually perfectly consistent with international law. Under international law, the sanctions that the West routinely opposes upon its official enemies are a violation of international law. These should be, these are almost rising to the level of acts of war, especially the, the sanctions regimes that are specifically designed to destroy economies. Uh, these should be done only through uh, you know, multilateral, uh, truly international, United Nations sanctioned uh, regimes of sanctions that have been fully debated before the UN. So I think they had a particularly negative reaction to that because this has become, of course, the primary weapon of US uh, slash Western hegemony uh, sanctions. Uh, so uh, at the end of the day, I'm not surprised by the reaction. I think that uh, it's very regrettable. Uh, I think that the Chinese do genuinely want to see an end to this war. Uh, as uh, as do the vast majority of states that have expressed a favorable opinion about them. Interestingly, one of the states that, in Europe at least, that uh, saw this as a positive step was uh, the Hungarian government of Viktor Orban. Uh, you know, there's lots we can criticize about Viktor Orban, but uh, from my perspective, when it comes to this war, and uh, particularly the reaction to the Chinese proposal, uh, I think he's one of the more sensible people in the European Union right now. Let us go through some arguments that are made usually against uh, negotiation and diplomacy. Let me begin with the first one and when you're done answering, I'll go to the ne next argument. The first argument is against peace and diplomacy. Shouldn't the West put Ukraine in the strongest position with weapons, 
so it can avail more concessions when negotiations actually start to take place. Well, that sounds uh, good in theory, except it's just completely divorced from the reality. Uh, in fact, I just finished writing an op-ed about this very question. Uh, you know, within the last few months, uh, Antony Blinken, uh, the U.S. Secretary of State, has said that uh, attempts to, to retake Crimea by force are a red line uh, for uh, the uh, Putin government. Uh, U.S. officials, according to Politico, I believe it was, gave a classified briefing to Congress where they said that they very much doubt that uh, the Ukraine military is going to be able to retake Crimea. Uh, you know, uh, there was a report in the Wall Street Journal within the last 24 to 48 hours, which said that the leaders of Germany and France had a frank discussion with Volodymyr Zelensky, in which they told him that, uh, you know, unless he manages to gain some spectacular battlefield victories in the near future, it's time to sit down and have a serious discussion. Uh, the, the new leader, newly elected leader of uh, the Czech Republic, Pavel, who was a NATO commander at the Munich Security Conference, uh, you know, he said that uh, it's entirely possible that attempts to retake territory will result in losses of Ukrainian life that are unbearable. Uh, that was his word. And then you had Josip Borrell, the EU foreign policy, policy chief on the last day of the Munich Security Conference, saying that uh, unless Europe, whose arsenals have been almost entirely depleted, somehow found a way to speed up the delivery of ammunition to Ukraine, the war is over. It's over. That's the word he used. So, uh, and then we this was before, uh, you know, the encirclement of Bakhmut, which just happened within the last uh, 24 to 48 hours. So the reality, we all, you know, any humane, sensible foreign policy should be based upon reality. I don't think I should have to explain that proposition. The reality is that Ukraine is losing. It's being devastated. It's suffering gigantic casualties. A U.S. Marine just told an American media outlet that the average lifespan on a soldier on the front line in Bakhmut is four hours. Four hours. That's shocking. So the reality is if we keep shipping more weapons to Ukraine, uh, you know, Russia, which as Obama observed many years ago, has escalation dominance in the in the theater of Ukraine, will always be able to out-escalate the West. It will respond with greater force than is being applied to it. it and where this will all end, Zane, is in the complete obliteration of, of, of Ukraine. That's where this is going to end. So I, I, I categorically reject those who say that the path to peace is more weaponry. I think that's patently absurd. Second argument, which is usually made by our foreign minister, Analia Baerbock, German foreign minister, negotiations cannot take place from a position of subjugation. And until Ukraine does not win back its territory, it is unjust and immoral fundamentally. Well, I, I, I don't find that that message, that argument is consistent with uh, Ms. Baerbock's claims and those of other leaders that, uh, you know, Ukraine is winning. I mean, if Ukraine is winning, why does she describe the current state of affairs as a position of subjugation? Uh, but at the end of the day, we have to come back to the reality. Let's compare where this is going to go, where this is going and where it's likely to be in six months to where Ukraine is today. Ukraine's negotiating position will weaken. That is the overwhelming likelihood. Right now, and this is very important strategically for Ukraine, Ukraine still has an outlet to the Black Sea. It still has control of Odessa. It could lose that. There's been a lot of noise in the last few days about Transnistria, and the Russians are very concerned about an accumulation of Ukrainian forces near the border with Moldova. 
they've been very concerned about the security of the ethnically Russian inhabitants of Transnistria from the outset of this war. It is entirely possible that once the Ukrainian military is sufficiently weakened by Russians, Russia's military assault or offensive, that they will move on Odessa and they will seek to develop a land bridge to Transnistria and deprive Ukraine of all access to the Black Sea, rendering the country completely landlocked. That would be a strategic disaster for Ukraine. So what we need to be at, and I didn't even mention all the people who will die in that process, we need to look at where things currently stand to where they're heading. Ms. Baerbock is frankly spewing hopium. It's just delusional. She's imagining that providing more weapons to Ukraine is going to turn the tide and ultimately result in Ukraine greatly strengthening its negotiating position. I just don't think that that is a, that, that, that reflects the current reality, sadly. And the last argument that is made is we don't negotiate with um, dictators and terrorists like Putin. What do you make of this argument? Well, first of all, it's just not true. Uh, you know, we've, in the course of human history, the Western powers have many times negotiated with uh, persons that they regarded as very unsavory human beings because they realized that the alternative was worse. The alternative was prolonged war and the destruction of entire civilizations and potentially all of humanity. In, that's what we're dealing with the nuclear era. So I just don't think that's true. But more to the point, I think it's a gross simplification of the Russian government. It's a caricature. It's uh, this black and white, good versus evil narrative that we're hearing in the West doesn't reflect the complexity and the nuances of this war in its history. For example, and I'm not going to you know, recite all of the things you and I have discussed in past uh, conversations, but there actually were millions of Ukrainian citizens of ethnically Russian origin who were under threat by the Ukrainian military in the Donbass and in Luhansk. Thousands of them were killed by shelling over the eight years prior uh, to the invasion in February of last year. And there was a dramatic increase in the bombardment of Donetsk, the Donbass, by Ukrainian military forces in the days leading up to uh, the invasion by Russia. So Russia, and of course, there's the whole issue of NATO expansion as well. The guarantees that were given by Western powers to Gorbachev that NATO would not expand eastward, which were repeatedly violated. So there were legitimate complaints and concerns that the Russian uh, government had. It's not just Putin. Uh, you know, it's the, the, the entirety of the Russian government. Uh, again, I want to reiterate that, you know, when William Burns, who's the current CIA director, was uh, a diplomat in Russia, he sent a secret cable to the State Department, which was later leaked by WikiLeaks, in which he said that he had spoken to people across the political spectrum in Russian politics, and every single one of them was deeply concerned about NATO expansion up to the borders of Russia. So I think Ms. Baerbock is greatly simplifying. It's really a discredit to her and to the Green Party that she's doing this. The history of this conflict, Russia has and has always had legitimate concerns which need to be addressed. And if we address them, frankly, Zane, it'll only, not only benefit Russia, it'll benefit us all. What is in the interest of all Europeans and all of humanity is that this war be brought to an end and there be peace and stability in Ukraine. Let us uh, move forward with uh, more uh, international developments. The UN General Assembly approved a non-binding resolution recently that calls for Russia to end its war and withdraw from Ukrainian territory. 
The resolution passed with 141 voting in favor, 7 against, with 32 abstentions. Asian heavyweights like China and India abstained from voting. Brazil even voted to support the resolution. Does the resolution signify a change of the Global South in terms of its position towards Russia? No, I don't believe so. Uh, I, I think that the voting in this, uh, for the most part, the voting has been consistent with vast past UN General Assembly votes with respect to this war. And, and if you do the math, uh, I haven't done the math specifically for this one, but I did actually go through the list of countries that abstained and voted no uh, to the prior resolution at the UN General Assembly about the Ukraine war. And it was over 50, the, the ones who either voted against the resolution or abstained uh, represented over 50% of the human population. Uh, and I think it's roughly 50-50 now. And let's be honest, Zane. Okay, we should all be adults and recognize how the uh, United Nations General Assembly actually works today. Uh, and in fact, I'm doing a, a study on the current session of the UN General Assembly to determine voting patterns, not with respect to just the war, but just on a whole range of issues, nuclear weapons, Palestine, and so forth. And what you find again and again and again is that this large collection of tiny nations, which are extremely vulnerable to US pressure, consistently vote with the United Nations, like Micronesia, or with the United States, I should say, uh, like Micronesia, Palau, uh, the Marshall Islands, uh, you know, Liechtenstein, uh, Andorra, Monaco. So when you actually look at that list, I'm not saying that there aren't heavyweights out there that have voted, voted in favor. There are a number of heavyweights, but a lot of the states that voted in favor of that resolution represent a tiny proportion of the human population and are subject to immense economic pressure by the United States. Uh, so I, I don't think we should uh, really attach too much weight to that, especially when you look to the look at the distribution of the population of the world across the states that voted no or abstained. Russian President Putin and US President Biden held major speeches recently. While visiting Poland, Biden stated that the Russia will never win in Ukraine, whereas Putin blamed the West for the war in Ukraine and announced the suspension of the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty, also known as the START Treaty, that aimed to cap the number of strategic nuclear warheads that the United States and Russia can deploy. How do you view these developments? Are we heading into a nuclear confrontation? We're certainly heading into a nuclear arms race. Uh, you know, the nuclear arms race has been revived with a vengeance. Let's, let, again, we, we should look at the history. How did we get here? Uh, this started, the dismantling of the nuclear, uh, you know, proliferation uh, legal infrastructure began with the Bush administration's withdrawal from the anti-ballistic missile treaty, which I think happened in 2004. And then you had the Trump administration withdraw from the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty in 2018. And the Trump administration the same year withdrew from the uh, JCPOA, the nuclear deal with Iran, even though the International Atomic Energy Agency certified that Iran was complying with the deal. Um, and so, uh, you know, at every step of the way, the U.S. has been bending over backwards to dismantle, you know, the non-proliferation ar architecture. Not to mention that all of the major nuclear powers are flouting their obligations on the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty because they're supposed to be uh, moving towards uh, the, the dismantling, the complete dismantling of their nuclear arsenals, whereas they've been doing the opposite for decades. 
Um, so that's what ultimately got us to this point. I think it's highly regrettable what the Putin government did. I wish it hadn't done that. Uh, but it's very difficult to blame uh, the Putin government for no longer having confidence in, you know, the mutual inspection procedures under the START Treaty, uh, given what's happened up until now. Uh, so I think, again, to go back to the question of how uh, we can de-escalate and revive the movement towards disarmament, it has to begin with an end to this war. We can't realistically expect to uh, make real progress on non-proliferation and the dismantling of the world's nuclear arsenals, which are an existential threat to humanity, as long as NATO and Russia, the two biggest nuclear powers in the world, are effectively at war, which they are. This war has also led to a frenzy in militarization. As you mentioned, the calls for growing NATO are growing stronger and stronger. Finland and Sweden uh, accession to NATO is currently blocked by Turkey, but analysts say it is only a matter of time before the tide changes. In addition, there are plans to increase NATO's high alert troops from 40,000 to 300,000 and strengthen the Eastern Front to prevent what they call here in the German media a Russian expansion. In Germany also, there are a debate taking place right now between whether to improve social spending um, for example, providing uh, children with food in um, kindergartens and schools um, versus uh, increasing the military budget. Do you think these developments um, are gonna uh, affect the social fabric of the West? And also, and this, this is the argument, isn't it necessary to improve militarization to prevent another possible attack from Russia? Uh, well, <laughs> you know, it's amazing that whenever people talk in the West about you know these political leaders about vast increases in their military budgets, they just ignore the fact that the the collective military budget of NATO prior to the invasion was approximately U.S. 1.2 trillion dollars. U.S. I want to repeat that number: U.S. 1.2 trillion dollars per year. The annual military budget of Russia prior to the invasion was approximately U.S. 60 billion dollars. And the annual military budget of China, which has a much larger economy than Russia's, was about 300 billion, I believe 300 or 330 billion. So Russia and China together had a military budget that was well under 50% of NATO's collective military budget. It was actually under 50% of the US military budget alone. Um, so why aren't we asking uh, why the current expenditure levels are not sufficient to defend NATO countries from the supposed threats being, you know, uh, being uh, created by uh, Russian and Chinese military expenditures. It's not enough that we're spending two to three times more in NATO already. You know, where's this money going? And I think the answer is quite obvious, Zane. The, the money is going to enrich arms manufacturers, which, which are robbing, they're robbing us blind. I mean, they are you know, selling to us uh, military hardware that is extremely overrated and obscenely expensive. Every time they quote a price to us, the price that we pay ends up being a multiple. Somehow these budgets always skyrocket. You know, you see people uh, who are on the boards of major arms manufacturers moving in and outside of government as though there's a revolving door. Then they are trotted out by the mainstream media uh, these same people who sit on the boards of arms manufacturers and um, and they're 
requested to offer their opinions on military threats without there being any disclosure that they actually have financial ties to arms manufacturers. I mean, the military industrial complex, as you know, Dwight D. Eisenhower warned at the end of his presidency, has effectively destroyed democracy in the West. We are now beholden to the military industrial complex. And, and the mere fact that you know, spending US $1.2 trillion a year is not enough, according to these people, tells you all you need to know about the reality of the situation. We are being robbed blind. This money should be plowed into a socially beneficial programs, education, healthcare, transition to a renewable energy economy, uh, addressing homelessness, a growing problem in our society. This is where the money should be going. It's being diverted towards an, a, a military budget that's spiraling out of control, and no one has a good answer for why it's not enough already. When Biden visited Kiev, he announced that more sanctions will follow soon against Russia. Just a few days ago, the EU announced its 10th package of sanctions. According to the EU's commission's website, it will include trade and financial sanctions. Further export bans worth more than 11 billion and with the aim of depriving the Russian economy of critical tech and industrial goods. It also steps up enforcement and anti-circumvention measures, including a new reporting obligation on Russian central bank assets. Do you think these sanctions will cripple the Russian economy and help end the war? Uh, absolutely not. I mean, you know, the IMF, IMF just issued its predictions for global growth. And uh, while uh, the growth that uh, it predicted for the Russian economy was quite small. It was growth nonetheless. And its prediction for GDP performance in Russia for the coming year was greater than that of Germany and the United Kingdom. In fact, the United Kingdom is an economic mess, in part because of the increased price of energy resulting from these sanctions. The, the reality here, Zane, and you know, there's, there was an excellent interview done by one of the leading intellectuals in France, uh, Emmanuel Todd, with Le Figaro uh, about a month or two ago, in which he talked about the fact that Russia actually produces things that the world actually needs. You know, a lot of the GDP you see in the West, particularly in the United States, is just, you know, financialized, uh, you know, uh, a fantasy. It doesn't actually represent the production of goods that are essential to the well-being of people. If you were to truly remove, you know, from the global economy, the things that Russia produces, the agri, the, you know, the, the fertilizer, the grain, the oil, the gas, the minerals, you know, this would be disastrous for the global economy. I think they actually know this. And so a lot of this is just a game, these sanctions. It's just, you know, designed to, uh, you know, uh, I mean, they are trying to damage the Russian economy. There's no question about that. But at the same time, they're being quite sneaky about it and with a wink and a nod, allowing states like India to recycle Russian gas and, you know, sell it into global markets because they understand that if they don't do that, you know, this is going to be a gigantic problem for the global economy. Uh, the sanctions at the end of the day are not working as long as two huge economies like those of China and India are doing business with uh, Russia as they are. In fact, business is booming and growing rapidly with Russia. And you also have countries like Turkey, uh, you have, you know, Iran, uh, you know, the, the states, even Mexico, Mexico, which is a, you know, uh, next door to the United States and is part of the North American free trade arrangement has refused to sanction Russia. Uh, this is, this is clearly failed. 
And I think that this is why we find ourselves in this extremely perilous situation, because the West didn't imagine a situation where Russia would be able to survive the sanctions regime. They thought the, you know, Obama disdainfully described Russia's economy as a, a gas station pretending to be a nation. Uh, no, actually, it turns out that it is vitally important to the health of the global economy. People in China and India and elsewhere realize this. And, and, the, and the West didn't have a plan B, Zane. You know, they didn't think, well, what happens if the sanctions fail? No matter how many sanctions we impose, the Russian economy survives and thrives. And Russia then decides to escalate militarily, which it has. They didn't have a plan B. And now what is happening? They're running out of weaponry. That's why Josip Burrell said, you know, this war is going to be over unless we find a magical way to get more ammunition to Ukraine. Uh, so, uh, the, the, again, at the risk of sounding like a broken record, the sensible, rational, humane thing to do is to negotiate a peace deal now before things get a lot worse. And I think any sensible person can see that that's exactly where this is heading. To my last question, returning back to our foreign minister, Analia Baerbock, she recently presented guidelines for a feminist foreign policy, which will include protections for women, ensuring equality across the world. In addition, Annalea Baerbock at the 52nd session of the Human Rights Council stressed the difficulties that women are facing in Afghanistan and Iran, and also mentioned that Russia is reportedly abducting children, children uh, in the war in Ukraine. How do you evaluate our foreign minister's call for feminism, human rights, is this something to take seriously? Well, uh, you know, I think, uh, I mean, let me let me just say quickly before I answer the, the thrust of your question about this claim that Russia is kidnapping children. I, I don't know uh, to what extent this is true or not true. I do take claims of this nature with a grain of salt. I don't assume them to be false. I don't assume them to be true. Obviously, the Russian government strenuously denies them. In the current propagandistic environment, it's very hard to know who's telling the truth. So I think we should all just, you know, withhold judgment on that and wait until there has been truly independent, thorough investigation done of this and other allegations of human rights violations by uh, by Russia in this war. But you know, more broadly, putting that aside, of course, you know, the principles she's articulating are admirable. Uh, you know, what's what what ethical person wouldn't support them? But the, the, the foreign policies of the Western states uh, are anything but uh, promotional of human rights and particularly the rights of women. So let's just look at the case of Saudi Arabia. You know, my country, Canada, uh, is selling $15 billion of heavy weaponry uh, to Saudi Arabia, one of the most misogynistic regimes on earth. Uh, you know, uh, look at the way uh, the Israeli military forces treat Palestinians and particularly Palestinian women and children. You know, she's concerned about children in Russia, Analia Baerbach. Well, Betselem, uh, an Israeli human rights organization for years has documented how Israeli forces are torturing, I repeat, not just kidnapping, torturing Palestinian children. Israel's military uh, you know, administration is the only one in the world, I believe, which subjects children to prosecution in military courts, which have virtually no due process protections. And Germany is one of the fiercest defenders of Israel on the world stage. Fiercer, you can hardly, you know, defend the Palestinian people in Germany without being, you know, persecuted by the government. 
accused of anti-Semitism and, you know, ultimately silenced in some manner. So Ms. Baerbach's rhetoric is wonderful, but the reality of German and Western foreign policy is profoundly inconsistent with her purported objectives. Dimitri Descaris, journalist and lawyer, thank you so much for your time today. Pleasure. Thank you for having me again, Zane. And thank you guys for tuning in today. Don't forget to subscribe to our alternative channels on Rumble and Telegram. YouTube is not suggesting our videos like it used to a few years ago to new viewers. So if you want to stay in touch with our information, be sure to join us on our alternative channels on Rumble and Telegram. And be sure to donate. If you're watching this video, be sure to take into account that there's a whole team of volunteers and mini jobbers that are doing camera work, light, audio, and in the case of our German videos, translating voice over correction. So be sure to donate so that we can continue to produce independent nonprofit news and analysis. I'm your host Zan Raza. See you guys next time.